I will be reading Jonah chapter 2. Then, wait, oh, sorry. would you please stand for the reading oh, of God's sorry. word? <laughs> he usually says it and I forgot. Okay. Jonah chapter 2. Then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the belly of the fish, saying, I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and you heard my voice. For you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the flood surrounded me. All your waves and your billows passed over me. Then I said, I am driven away from your sight. Yet I shall look again upon your holy temple. The water closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped around my head at the roots of the mountains. I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. Yet you brought me up. You brought up my life from the pit. O Lord, my God. When my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord, and my prayer came to you into your holy temple. Those who pay regard to the vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. But with the voice of thanksgiving, I, but with, but I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you. What I have vowed, I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. And the Lord spoke to the fish. And it vomited Jonah out upon the dry land. Thank you. This is the word of God. You may be seated. C.S. Lewis started his life as an atheist. It was through a series of events, miraculous events, that God used to save Jack's soul. He called himself, he wanted people to call him Jack because his childhood dog who passed away, his name was Jack. To this, C.S. Lewis said that he was the most reluctant convert in all of England. Jonah, however, was probably the most reluctant prophet in, in all of the scriptures. Before I go any further, I just want to mention how, yes, I was aware that I kept saying Noah last week. I tried to stop, and I just kept doing it more. It's kind of like trying not to think of a pink elephant. So if I do it again this week, I'm, I apologize. I'm going to try not to. Jonah, not Noah. Um, there are prophets who just stop. There are prophets who disobey. Um, they pay for that for in eternity. But God says to Noah to go to Nineveh and Jonah. There we go. <laughs> Try to not think of a pink elephant. Anyway, um, to go to Nineveh. And Jonah says, no, the story of Jonah then becomes God saying back to Noah um, what we see in. Did I say it again? How does it? flow so easy. Jonah, um, what we see in this uh, tool expectation slide I've got up here, you know which one I'm talking about? It'll be, yeah, here we are. I don't know if you can see this very well or not. Um, this is kind of how God uses us, is he starts off with, uh, please come loose. Please go to Nineveh. Goes to the next part right here. Jonah's you know, making his uh, trip out there. Um, I hope it comes loose. He gives him some time to reconsider. He doesn't reconsider, so you got the bigger one right here. I wasn't asking. He starts sending the storm. You should have listened. That's when the storm gets even worse, and they try to they try to row to shore. And then finally, we get to the last one. It can't be tight if it's liquid. And he gets thrown overboard into the sea. The story of Jonah as... 
Yep, as the prophet um, is get, got, gets to the point of liquid, he is thrown into the sea. Um, it is not it is not just a nice story from history meant to encourage us, but it is also a mirror. The book of Jonah is a mirror for us. When we look at that, it's easy for us to point and accuse. It's another thing for us to see that the other the other fingers on her hand are pointed towards us. In every sermon, after I'm done with my research, I write it out. I'll listen to other pastors preach on the same scripture, pastors I trust. And um, I, get, I get a lot from that. In fact, I sometimes quote them in my message. And what I thought was interesting is there was a number who always want to condemn Jonah. And I'm thinking, as you condemn Jonah, you condemn yourself. Because we all have Ninevites. We all have people that if we were to be honest, if God would just put them all in the same area and nuke, we wouldn't shed many tears over. Actually, Janelle, actually, very, very good thing talking about those who are doing the trafficking. It's hard for me to pray for them, I'll be honest. It's hard for me not to just wish that they'd just go to the same place so that we could just nuke them. When we condemn Jonah, we condemn ourselves because we all have Ninevites. Now, I'm hoping nobody here, hoping that nobody here has a prejudice or a disdain for a nationality, a people group, or somebody because of their skin color. But we all have Ninevites, Russians, Antifa, KKK. Most of us, if not all of us, have a Ninevite people. Now, once again, I hope that nobody has a disdain for an actual group of people based on color or nationality. That is a sin of partiality. But if you dig with most people, you'll find a group that they would be happy if God just brought them together and nuked them. The idea of going to these people and preach to them would make you run the other way. So that's what Jonah did. He took off, and in chapter 1, while he is in, the, while he's in transit, God sends a storm. Jonah passes out and is woken up and told to pray to his God. He was a prophet who didn't pray. His shipmates cast lots, and the lots fall to Noah, who then tells them this is his fault, and he has to convince him, them to throw him overboard. The end of, cha- the end of chapter 1 and the entirety of chapter 2 is, is a whale of a tale. Now, those of you who like 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea, you probably know where I took that from. Got a whale of a tale to tell you, lads. A whale of a tale or two. Got a fluffing fish and the girls I've loved with nights like this and the moon above. A whale of a tale and it's all true, I swear by my tattoo. Anyway, um, I, I was told that you like when I sing, so I'm just going to include that in every sermon from now on. It's a whale of a tale. Jonah's story so, um, so, Jonah's story so far is out of the frying pan into the fire kind of a story. Or more accurately put, it is out of the ship into the belly of a great fish. Many skeptics criticize the story of Jonah as implausible or as a parable, as something, or kind of a mythological story. And I never quite get how a people who believe that the God who spun the earth into motion in six days created the universe, took Jesus Christ, raised him from the dead on the third day, think it's impossible that he could get a big fish to swallow some, some guy and keep him alive for three days. The, the, real, the, the, the nail in the cup, and people try to, make a seat, try to make it sound like it's a parable, but it'd be unlike any other parable we find in Scripture because it involves real people, a real time, a real place. 
The only time Jesus ever even mentions a name in a parable is Lazarus, and it was probably a nice little kind of aside to one of his friends there, but not actually referring to that friend. Matthew 12, 40, it's even more clear than this, that Jesus considers the story of Jonah to be a reality. He says in verse 40 of Matthew chapter 12, For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the whale's belly, so shall the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The point of this part of the story is that it isn't something that happens every day. It's ding, ding, a miracle. I never follow, once again, I I can never follow someone who can believe that God created the heavens and the earth and raised Jesus from the dead, but a big fish swallowing a dude, um, well, and keeping him alive in the belly of that fish, um, they see that as, they see that as a bridge too far. It might be a whale of a tail, but it's all true, and I swear by my non-existent tattoos. Whale or a fish? So I am purpose, purposely switched uh, the translations for, my, for the reference of Jesus in Matthew to the KJV. Wait for that slide. You'll see a slide on there I want you to go to. Not yet. Go, go, go. No, not yet. I got to explain it first. Thank you. Uh, a whale or a fish. So I um, purposely went to the translation of the KJV for the verse in Matthew because in that one, Jesus says that Jonah was in the belly of a whale for three days. Many skeptics will say, well, well, Jesus and Jonah contradict each other, so the Bible can't be true. And really, that's a, it's a bad understanding. They were talking about the same thing. Um, the, uh, the word that is used in both places um, does not differentiate between whales and fishes. Nearly 3,000 years before Jesus spoke of Jonah being swallowed by a ketos, which is translated as fish or whale, Um, It was translated the same way in the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament, used used the same Greek word, ketos, to translate the Hebrew word um, dog, which means fish, found in Jonah, in the book of Jonah. The fact is, as Hebrew and Greek scholar Jack Lewis, not C.S. Lewis, different Jack Lewis, concluded both dog and ketos designated sea creatures of undefined species. In no way did Jesus, the creator of all things, make a mistake about what kind of animal God had prepared to swallow Jonah. The animal was a great sea creature and not necessarily a great fish, according to our modern, more limited definitions of the word. It may very well have been a type of fish, a water-living mammal, or an extinct reptile, We simply cannot be sure, as Dave Miller concluded, both the Hebrew and Greek languages lack precise precise definitions that conform to our modern-day definitions between the different species. You can go to that slide now. Thank you. So the uh, word here, dog, um, it is translated as sea creature. So it could have been a whale. It could have been a large fish like the Megalon shark which I think ate the guy from Fast and the Furious. I didn't watch the movie, so I don't know. (laughs) I don't know if it was a a giant squid or if they even knew about giant squids. It probably was not, but it was definitely not Godzilla. So I just wanted to make sure everybody knew that. (laughs) For two reasons. One, Godzilla also lives on land and he's fictional. So (laughs) let's move on. Um... It's significant that God sends a giant fish 
whale, what have you, to swallow Jonah. Um, it has a lot to do with the mythology of the time that is used in the poetic books of the Old Testament. In H.L. Ellison's commentary on Jonah, he makes a connection to the fish and the mythology around Leviathan that the Old Testament poetic books make reference to. Get into this uh, real quickly here. Most ancient Near East uh, cultures had a mythology around Leviathan. Leviathan was a sea serpent that represented chaos, basically evil, things that are going wrong. The Old Testament does not make it seem like Leviathan existed, but uses it as shorthand for chaos in this world. All these cultures, all these ancient Near East cultures, feared the chaos worm, feared the chaos serpent, um, Leviathan. But in the Old Testament, it makes light of Leviathan, makes light of the impending dread of chaos. The, For instance, the Egyptians had, um, I can't remember his name, I think it's Apath, um, which was the chaos serpent that tried to devour the world by night, and Ra had to fight him. The Bible kind of makes fun of all of this with, with Leviathan in the Old Testament. Um, well, uh, let me go back here. The, sea, the seas themselves were a picture of chaos, unknowable, unsearchable, unending. In Psalm 74, 13 and 14, Leviathan refers to God's rule over chaos and to the destruction of the Egyptians at the Red Sea. Then in Psalm 104, 26, Leviathan, the dreaded chaos monster, is nothing more than God's toy. Do you know what hope that gives you? It means that when everybody's losing their head about all the chaos that's happening in this world, remind yourself, Leviathan is God's goldfish. When everybody's losing their mind, oh no, Russia, Ukraine, World War III, I'm not worried because the great chaos worm is just my dad's it's just my dad's pet goldfish. We don't see it at the time. In fact, we freak out. We think I'm going to be devoured by this thing. But in Lamentations chapter 3, we know that we are not devoured. We are not consumed for his compassions never fail. They are new every morning. Great is thy faithfulness. The prayer of Jonah inside the fish reflects this. You know, not all chaos, you know, how many of you know that the outside world can seem very calm for everyone else, but one bad doctor visit and it feels like you're in the middle of a fire nado in your canoe with a leak? How many of you know that it doesn't matter um, what the president's doing if you have bills you can't pay? Family drama can make the nicest day seem like a great storm. All of a sudden, Leviathan is opening up its mouth to devour you. Just know that he's your father's pet goldfish. And what you fear, God may turn to your salvation. You wouldn't think, man, I'm out in a stormy sea. I sure hope a big fish swallows me up. But that was God's means of salvation for Jonah. Chapter 2 is his prayer inside the belly of the fish. He was in there for three days. In verse 2, Jonah says, I called out to the Lord out of my distress. The word distress comes from the Hebrew word. It's Anglicized as S-A-R-A, Sarah. It's pronounced Sarah. Um, it's like Sarah, but not S-A-R-A-H. Um, so it's a different word. And it means, it means dire straits, distress, trouble, vexer, or a rival wife. Now, as you can imagine, um, Hebrew being a more poetic language, not every definition 
fits to every context and context is king. So there's nothing about the whale being a rival wife. Um, the root of Sarah is narrow, to be in a tight place. Um, when I was learning this, I was like, you don't say. I imagine being in the digestive tract of a big fish is kind of a tight place to be in. I, I know Pinocchio has kind of lied to us. You know, they're inside Monstro and they have their big ship and they're fishing. And like, I don't know, somehow he has butter too. I mean, like on the fish. And um, nope, being in the belly of the fish is a pretty tight place. And all of us have been in tight places too, right? Maybe you're running from God like Jonah. And God in his mercy lets some of those consequences of your action reach you. Maybe in a prison cell, divorce court. Explaining to the teacher why you thought cheating was a good idea at the time. Sometimes our prayers are in the middle of the fish, and sometimes it's not even our fault that we're inside the fish. Maybe it's things that turned out bad, but we didn't have bad motives. But here we are in the fish, and out of our distress, we cry out to the Lord, and he answers us. Then we realize that the fish was actually God's instrument for our good, not our destruction. Prayers inside the fish are often the times we grow the most in the Lord in our own personal walk. There's a maturity that comes to prayers that happen inside the fish. I met with an old mentor of mine, my old college professor, this last week. And we were talking about a time in my life, in mine and Becca's life, that was a tight place, was a sarah. And it wasn't fun at the time. In fact, it felt like we were being consumed it was unjust. It wasn't right. I could go on and on and on. But I remember in that time, I had two, I, I had two choices before me. I could stay bitter and angry and paralyzed, or I could move and operate in love and forgiveness. And according to the Holy Spirit's power, I was able to do the latter instead of the former. And it made all the difference. Because I had a lot of friends who chose the former to stay in bitterness, and they're not in ministry today. But according to the Spirit's power, I was able to choose forgiveness. I was able to do those things. And I grew. I would not be as good a pastor today as I would be if I did not have that experience. Going, going on here, the pagans and the prophet. The book of Jonah is filled with stories of repentance. It's a constant contrasting between the prophet and the pagans. We have the pirates who don't do anything who threw him over the ship. Patrick made me say that. Um, they throw Jonah um, overboard and the sea is calm. If you've seen the Jonah movie, you know what I'm talking about. They then sacrifice to the Lord, the God of Israel, the Lord, the God of Jonah. And you know, honestly, I believe we will see them in heaven one day. You have the Ninevites who don't know their right hand from their left hand. They too, including their very king, repent in sackcloth and ashes. You even have a fish who he doesn't repent, but when he's asked to do something from God, he doesn't hesitate. He doesn't go the other way. He does what God wants him to do. I have to imagine this guy was probably very hard to live with after that. You can just imagine him going to his fish friends and it's like, what are you guys doing? You know, like the octopus is trying to play his new drum set. He's like, hey, did I tell you about the time? And they're like rolling their eyes that Yahweh asked me to eat this guy and then spit him out somewhere. Like, we heard it, we heard it. I mean, has he asked you ever to do anything like that? No, no, you're the special one. 
I don't know, probably not. Um, Jonah's prayer inside the whale reveals something fundamental, not just for people who God uses as bait for fish, but for all of us. His prayer represents our powerlessness to change our circumstances by ourselves. Two, our constant need of salvation. And three, the right response to any interaction with the Lord, and that is worship. In verses one through six, he describes his powerlessness in his situation. Now, contrary to what many uh, cartoons and movies about Jonah um, talk about, he didn't automatically get swallowed by the fish. I mean, let's read the prayer of Jonah to the Lord from the belly of the fish, saying, I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me out of the belly of Sheol. Sheol is the place of the dead. It's not necessarily heaven or hell, just the place of the dead. I cried, and you heard my voice, for you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the flood surrounded me. All your waves and your billows passed over me. Then I said, I am driven away from your sight. So he is sinking down deep into the water. I don't know how close you've ever come to drowning. I've never come close. My wife is probably the person I know who's come the closest to drowning I've, I've ever met. She was on a missions trip over in Mexico, and she saw this boy who was drowning, so she thought she'd go over there and help him. Now, as many of you know, you have to watch when you're helping somebody who's drowning because they will pull you under, and that is what this boy was doing to Becca. And, um, I mean, she believes an angel actually saved her, and I, I believe her absolutely. I don't say that like it's a claim, but an angel saved them both out of that. She nearly drowned it. No wonder the scripture tells us in Galatians chapter 6 that those of us who are spiritual should restore those gently, but to keep watch, lest we too be tempted. It's important to be aware of that. When it comes to our powerlessness, we need to remember that the, that the great fish in the story was Noah's, with Jonah's, sorry, Jonah's salvation, not a punishment. That God will use all things to the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. When me and Becca got married, I had my two oldest sisters sing this song, um, God Bless the Broken Road. Many of you have probably heard it. And my wife, um, she just took it in, in stride at the time. And it wasn't only until recently Becca asked me, why did you have them do that song? Because that song is about people who have had a hard time in love, you know, have broken hearts, um, who have had many relationships, and then they finally find the one. And I'm like, that is what the song's about, but it's not what it's about to me. See, it wasn't about you I wanted them to sing that song. It's that re the recognition that God uses everything in my life to make me love him more and to be more of his. The, the line of the song, you know, every, every long lost dream led me to where you are. Others who broke my heart were like northern stars leading me on my way to your loving arms. Somehow I know it's true. God blessed the broken road and led me straight to you. This is the thing I'm so convinced in my life. Everything in my life is designed by God to bring me closer to him. That's what Jonah's realization in the pit of the, uh, the belly of this fish. This was all for my good. He doesn't blame the pirates who didn't do anything for throwing him overboard. He says, you cast me out. That takes an incredible maturity in the Lord, spiritual maturity, to realize that this didn't just fall out of the sky and woe is me, but I did something to cause this to happen. My translation does a good job with the use of belly. I don't know about your translations. Jonah uses a play on words when he's saying, first, that he cried out to the Lord in the belly of the fish. And in verse 2, he says, And he answered me out of the belly of Sheol. Sheol 
isn't heaven or hell, but a synonym for death. Despite what many, um, what many movies and cartoons would say about Jonah, Jonah actually came very close to death before the fish swallowed him up. In verse 3, Jonah realizes that God, not the sailor, sailors, cast him out. Not just out of the boat, but out of the very presence and right relationship with God, because that is what sin does. God is love, but he is also holy, holy, holy. In him there is light, no darkness at all. God cast Jonah into the sea, but Jonah is the one who broke the relationship. Jonah in verse 4 says that he's been driven away from God's sight. He doesn't mean that God doesn't see him or know what he's doing. That is obvious. God sent the storm. God sent the fish. Spiritually, Jonah feels far away from God. He asks the question. It's not put as a question in your English translations, but in the Hebrew, it's a question. Yet shall I look upon your holy temple? That is, as he's drowning, will I see the temple of my Lord again? How many feel like they need to clean up their act before they, need to, before they can come to the Lord? Once I get my addiction under control, then I can show up on a Sunday. Once we get married, then we can attend again. Some have been so distant from God for so long that they can echo Jonah in verse 4. Verse 4. Then I said, I am driven away from your sight, yet I shall again look upon your holy temple. In verse 5 and 6 is the downward spiral as he goes into the water. The waters closed in over, um, over me to take my life deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped around my head. At the roots of the mountains, I went down to the land whose bars close upon me forever. Yet you brought me up, brought up my life from the pit. I bet many of you have been here, not drowning, but drowning in a downward spiral of depression, drowning in a downward spiral of a time that you don't even know if you will ever get past it again. Here's the amazing thing. Salvation is in that moment. Jonah, in his prayer, doesn't mention the fish. If I were to guess, um, if I were to guess, it probably occurred to him after Goldie threw him up on the shore. All he knows is that he is saved. God's mean of salvation is often not understood. Look at Jesus, the captain of our salvation. Who would have ever guessed the instrument God would use to save this world would be a cross and a grave? but not just any cross, not any grave, an empty cross, an empty grave. Nobody in Jesus' time is ready for Resurrection Sunday. Even Mary, who comes to the, to the tomb, sees it's empty. The first person to see the resurrected Christ sees the resurrected Christ and thinks he's the gardener and asks him, where did you put the body? Nobody's thinking, no body, he must be resurrected. Oftentimes, salvation doesn't come in the form we think it should come in. Sometimes, in fact, it looks like a big, ugly whale. You know what's so amazing about grace? Is our constant need for it. When we come to the point where we don't think we need grace, then that is when we are in trouble. A friend of mine was telling me about a conversation he had with several other pastors. This one pastor was being criticized by his people because he wasn't giving the gospel. And I thought the response from the other pastors was really telling. They said, well, not every Sunday has to be a salvation sermon. So I told my friend, I was like, that is a profound lack of understanding of the gospel and grace because it's not just our entry card. I need thee every hour. I need thee. 
Jonah doesn't just need grace here. He'll need it later as well. Spoiler alert. He is completely powerless to change himself, and so are you. You know what's crazy? Is that those of us who have begun in grace, we are saved, that we then try to change ourselves by our own means. There's an entire book called Galatians. If you want to know how somebody, how God really feels about us going back to works after we've begun in grace, you can read Galatians chapter 5. It gets pretty spicy. Dr. Martin Lord Jones said this, It is grace at the beginning and grace at the end, so that when you and I come to lay upon our deathbeds, the one thing that should comfort and help and strengthen us there is the thing that helped us in the beginning. Not what we have been, not what we have done, but the grace of God in Jesus Christ our Lord. The, the Christian life starts with grace. It must continue with grace. It ends with grace. Grace, wondrous grace. By the grace of God, I am what I am. Yet not I, but the grace of God, which is within me. Closing out this point, Ephesians 2, 1 through 2. Not my sermon, just this point. We got a, we got a ways to go. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins. Let me read that again. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins. You are completely as unable as a prophet in the middle of a stormy sea to save yourself, in, w- in which you once walked, following the course of this world. But it doesn't stop there. Verses 7 and 8, Jonah talks of his physical salvation. That's the second point here, is this prayer reminds us of our constant need of salvation. Salvation, uh, Jonah's salvation starts in verse 6, but his prayer of thanksgiving is really in verses 7 and 8. This is physical salvation. But even our Lord Jesus Christ links it to our spiritual salvation as he describes the three days Jonah spends in the fish with the three days in the earth that he will spend. There's a lot of parallels between Jonah's salvation and our spiritual salvation. Let me tell you about what I mean about this real quick here. I I do not mean to say that after you've been saved once, you need to be saved every day. Salvation is a moment in history that God justifies us. But as you'll read in the scripture, it talks about working out our salvation, and that is our sanctification, that God is now saving us from the power of sin in our life. One day it'll be the very presence of sin. But Jonah's experience here, it mirrors, mirrors baptism. Those who got baptized this last year, you remember me talking him, talking about how it was a picture of what happened spiritually. Jonah's salvation is that in a more Um, in a more clear way. He goes into the water, into the belly of the fish, according to his own words, to the very belly of death itself. We go down into the water of baptism, representing us dying to our own lives and to come out of the waters alive in Christ. Salvation does not include, does not mean life improvement. Possibly one of the greatest travesties and belittling of the gospel in modern history is how we try to make people believe, follow Jesus and your life will improve. Those of you who've been a Christian for a while, you know. Like all your problems didn't just go away as soon as you raised your hand at that church service. But you know, it wasn't about life improvement. It was about life from the death. It wasn't the Tony Robbins gospel. My apologies to Tony Robbins, but that's the first thing I could come up with. The gospel isn't life improvement. It's life from death. You were dead, not unhappy. You were dead in your transgressions and sins. 
Not maladjusted or not self-actualized. No, you were dead in your transgressions and sins. It seems most evangelism techniques are bent on trying to trick people into the kingdom and you just can't do it. You can talk about how cool our whale is. Inside the mouth, there's laser lights and fog machines and a DJ coming to the whale. No, it's life from death. To convince people that you may think your life is going great, but you are drowning in your sin. And one day when you come to meet the Lord, you will find out just how deep in the, in the ocean you really were. The seaweed was around your neck. Verse 8 reminds us what the world has to offer. It is nothing. It is empty wells, vain idols. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. Jonah's prayer for Thanksgiving reveals this. They have forsaken their hope for garbage. When Paul the Apostle saw the Galatians doing the same, he asked, how can you start with grace and go towards works? Don't you remember salvation can be found in no one else but in the Lord? Why should you start with yourself and then try, start with the Lord and then try with myself, try to do by my own volition, be justified before the Lord? Finally, verses 9 and 10 It tells us what the right response is for when God does something in our life. It is worship. I'm going to go first to 10, then to 9. I'll go backwards order here. Verse 10, And the Lord spoke to the fish, and it vomited Jonah out upon the dry land. At the end of this chapter, before I go to verse 9, I want to talk about why disobedience is so awful. In verse 10, the Lord says, and the fish does. In verse 3 of chapter 1, God says, and Jonah says, no thanks. This is why disobedience is, is, is so damnable, is that God tells the shore, tells the tide, this far, no further. And then we say, God, how close can I get to sin without actually sinning? The wind and the waves are more obedient than our heart is. And then we say, follow your heart. How, how, how crazy is that is that, that a whale with, with, with whatever brain it has, it can't talk, it can't make tools, but it can do what God asks it to do. But Jonah, the prophet, is like, no, I'd rather not. God says to the waters, this far and no farther. And we ask, how close can I get to sin without, not, with still not being, without sinning? Verse 9, Jonah says, with a voice of thanksgiving, he will sacrifice to the Lord. Hopefully you know this by now, but what is the New Testament definition of worship? Romans 12, 1 and 2. In view of God's mercy, I beseech you, brethren, to present your bodies as living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your acceptable and spiritual act of worship. The word can be translated both ways, and I believe both ways are right on the money. It is the bare bones entry into worship is to be a living sacrifice. Jonah sees this because Jonah says that he will sacrifice to the Lord. Jonah talks about making sacrifice. The New Testament believers, we are to make, we are to make ourselves a living sacrifice. No longer is there a sacrifice for sin, but there still are sacrifices of praise and thanksgiving. Jonah is about to find out that sacrifice is not about taking an animal and killing it and burning it. It's about a time we come to grips 
that being a living sacrifice isn't about singing songs and having an emotional experience. It's about obedience to the Lord. It's about allowing the Holy Spirit to find anything in us that is unclean and then offering it to God as a living sacrifice. So I've said this so many times and I'll keep saying it. If in your worship you are not changed, that was not worship. At least you are not worshiping God, you are worshiping yourself to give yourself in a moment. Even if you even if you were at the altar, tears running down, but you are unchanged, well, you got your reward, you got your emotional catharsis. Sometimes we confuse entertainment with the working of the Holy Spirit because our emotions are in flux. When I was in high school, I had free tickets to Evanescence. I don't know if anybody even remembers that band, but it was popular. So me and my friend, we, we go to this concert, and there was two other bands, and I was telling him afterwards, you know, it's weird how much this looks like a worship service because people are getting excited. People are jumping up and down. They're singing along with the music. You wish they wouldn't because you're there to listen to the band, not them, but that's what's happening. And, uh, and I remember there's this one part where the guy's talking about his sister who has cancer, and they're like, and we just, we just sing and we hope God hears us. And I'm just like, this is what we're like when we pray and we don't really believe God's going to do anything. We're just trying to get this emotional experience out of it. True worship happens when I come to the Lord, even prayer, singing songs, giving, whatever it is, and I am now changed because I'm a living sacrifice. It is a question we have to ask ourselves after every worship experience. Was it true worship? Was it worship that God desires? Or was it the false fire of, of Aaron's sons? The right response Last year, I did this year-long study. It was only supposed to be like six weeks on the book of Revelation. It did not last six weeks. I kept telling Jess Biddle, um, you're going to have to keep waiting because um, <laughs> I'm not even halfway through here. Um, that series, and you can go back on our YouTube, and you can, not YouTube, our Facebook page, and you can look at it. It really, man, it, it did something inside of me when it came to my view of worship. It gave a context to a phrase I had heard before in such a great, stark clarity. Here's the phrase that the culture of heaven is worship. It's like everyone's like, yeah, amen, that's good. Go through Revelation and realize that. When the scroll can't be opened and the weeping of the, pro of the prophet, of the revelator, and then all of a sudden it's open and heaven erupts in worship. It's like everything that the, everything the lamb does, everything God does, and everybody's losing their mind at what is God is doing. Can you imagine if our service was like that? I and mean, people are down at the altar and they're getting healed and all of a sudden everyone's like, whoa! Man, that's what heaven's like. That is what heaven's like. Even the darkest parts of Revelation when God has to unfurl his wrath out on the earth. And the denizens of heaven, with a loud voice, they cast crowns. They shout in loud voices. There is worship, worship. Because that is just the, it's the right response to when God does something in our life. Jonah has a lot to learn still. We're about to get into probably the darkest part of Noah's, Jonah's, sorry, Jonah's heart in chapter 3 and 4. But he's starting to understand this. It's the correct response to any activity in the presence of the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. It's Handel after he wrote the Hallelujah Chorus, after being sequestered into his study, neither eating nor drinking nor sleeping for a number of days. He bursts out and he says, I have seen the great God. 
Because that is what happens when we touch the throne of heaven. And it is our right. It is our right as children of God. That we have one mediator between God and man. You don't have to come to me. I hear your confession and I give you an act of attrition. You can go to the very throne of grace with confidence and receive mercy and grace. We're in, we're, in, we're in Sunday school this morning and like I came to that part and I was like, what more is there to say? I can go into the very holy of holies. Only one person at one, time, at one point in time could ever do that in the Old Testament. Now all of us, the, the curtain is torn in two and we can approach the throne of grace with confidence. Worship is the right response to the activity of God. Finally, in verse 9, he says, salvation belongs to the Lord. That's how Jonah concludes his prayer inside the fish. People will outright disagree with Jonah today. Now, they will not say it in so many words, but when they downplay God's working in salvation, that is what they are doing. It's true that God's invitation demands a response. So there there is the plan of salvation that requires you to repent and put your faith in Jesus Christ. It is evidence that demands a verdict, but do not hold up your RSVP as somehow you're contributing to the party. In theological circles, there is a great debate about what if, if anything, human, humans contribute to salvation. I'm not so much interested in that discussion as I'm interested in if somebody would say with Jonah, salvation belongs to the Lord. If we try to trick people into heaven, we don't believe that. If we try to get them just to sign on dotted line, hey, you're saved. You still love your sin. You don't care anything about God, but you don't want to go to hell. Great. We don't believe salvation belongs to the Lord then. When we're so afraid to witness because of fear of rejection, we don't believe salvation belongs to the Lord because we could do what Jonah does. Just tell them, tell them, tell them, the, tell them the story. Tell them the gospel and trust the Holy Spirit is going to work on their life. But if we believe salvation belongs to us, We're going to try, we're going to take it personally. We're going to be paralyzed in fear. What's funny is that Jonah believes with his whole heart that salvation belongs to the Lord. And that is why he did not want to go to Nineveh in the first place. And that is a sermon for two weeks from now. Worship team, would you please come up at this time? In the prayer of Jonah, Inside the fish, we are reminded of our own prayers inside the fish or prayers we will have inside the fish. In that, we recognize our powerlessness to change our situation. Sometimes we do everything before we pray and we should pray to start off with. Be obedient to what the scripture says. But a lot of times, that's the last thing we do. We come to a point where we realize I'm powerless to change the situation. You have a loved one who's an addict? You know what I'm talking about. No matter how much you might scream, beg, and plead, you can't change them. You can't change the situation. If you've dealt with addiction, you know what I'm talking about. If you've dealt with situations in your life, maybe your company is doing things that you just, they shouldn't be doing. And you might feel powerless, but you're not powerless if you are on, if you are with the Lord. But if you're trying to change it yourself, you are powerless. You realize your constant need of grace. And then finally, all of it, every single bit of it should be undergirded in worship. So now, during this last song, it's our time of reflection. We need to ask ourselves, is there an area in us us, that needs to change? Is there an area of unbelief? Is there an area 
of not being faithful. God has called you to something like Jonah, and you have been running the other way. Recognize your need to change and your inability to change it on your own. Second, is there an area of salvation? Do you, do you not know where you will go if you died this moment? Call upon the Lord, he will hear you. From the, from the depths of Sheol, he will hear you. And you will look to that holy mountain. My third, my third challenge for you today is become a better worshiper. Continually check on your growth. Am I growing in the fruit of the Spirit? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, and self-control? In our circles, we normally don't even see that as ways that we are growing spiritually. In fact, we kind of see it like, am I operating in the gifts of the Spirit? That's, that's somebody who's really spiritual. But according to the Scripture, it's those who exude love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, and self-control. And the gifts of the Spirit are exactly that. They are gifts. Not so that we can say, hey, I can prophesy and you can't. Are you growing this? How can you become a better worshiper? What is something that God wants from you that you've been unwilling to give to him? Would you please join us in our final song?